So we're in a series right now, and uh, it's called Rescued. And we've been talking about what it means to live as Christians who have been rescued by the gospel in a world, in the, in the world that we live in. Last week, we talked about a few things. Uh, I talked to you about the idea that we can't just let every thought run through our heads, right? We looked at the scripture passage and we, we said, you know, here's, here's, here's what the scripture says, that we are to take captive our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. And we talked about the fact that that language was violent language, that when you take someone captive, you're taking them against their will. And in essence, what we were saying and Paul's saying is that there's times when you're going to have to take your thoughts captive against their will because those thoughts are thoughts that will be struck, this destructive to you. And so today we're going to like capitalize on that and go a little bit further on that. We're going to be looking at the concept of humility and community today. Humility and community. And one of the things that Paul starts out this entire thing is, he says basically, unless you have humility, you won't be in community. All right? So he gives us a warning at the very beginning of this whole thing. And it's a pretty hard warning. This is what he says up on the screen. Romans chapter 3. Uh, or chapter 12, rather, verse three, it says this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. All right, let's pause here for a second. Let's just say, I mean, this is, this is hard. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. For the first thing you need to realize is, he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Imagine going to work and saying, hey, God wanted me to tell you this, coworker. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, right? That'd be a hard thing to say. So he starts off a little bit with some humility here. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. So I've received grace, God's unmerited favor in this area of my life so that I am not prideful, so that if I have been prideful or I am prideful, God's grace still covers me. So by the humility given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think too highly of yourself, right? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Paul does a couple things right here in this passage. First, he identifies that the way that we think about ourselves sometimes is out of order, that the way that we tend to think about ourselves is not accurate. And for many people, the lack of accuracy in the way that we see ourselves has to do with pride. And pride's a tricky thing, and we're going to look at it, because there's some very obvious forms of pride, and then there's some really sneaky versions of pride that we're not aware of. Uh, And so as we dive into this, he says, for by the grace given to me, to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. But he does say, think of yourself. He says, don't think of yourself this way, but do think of yourself this way. So thinking of yourself is not a bad thing. The Bible's not about you just acting without thinking. It's about you engaging your thought process, watching over your mind, watching over your heart, because from that, all kinds of things are going to flow. In fact, Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else, this is a category of prioritization. If you're looking at your life and you're thinking, what's most important? He says, put this at the top. Above all else, guard your heart for everything in it Everything you do flows from it. So above all else, guard your heart. Now, this is an interpretation problem uh, that we have today, and it's a challenge when you read the Bible, and it's this. Sometimes we read into words that are on the page of the Bible, contemporary or modern definitions of things that are ancient. They don't have the same definition, and that's what's happening right here. Most people get this wrong. So when we think of this, above all else, guard your heart, we think of the heart, 
We think of Valentine's Day. We, th- we think of like all of those heart-shaped candies and all of those angels with uh, beautiful cherub faces. It's about emotions. So when most people read this, above all else, guard your feelings for everything you do flow from them. That's not what it means. In the ancient world, in the Hebrew mind, they just had a different understanding because it wasn't informed by science. And this is what it said. They used to say that the thought process or the thoughts emerged from the heart. So we know science and your thoughts come from where? Your brain, that's right. So above all else, we could say, guard your mind for everything you do flows from that, okay? So guard your mind because everything that you do in your life is gonna flow from that. And last week, we were saying exactly that, that if you just allow any thought to come into your head and then you don't check that thought, you're not disciplining that thought, that thought will then go into you in such a way that it will deform your heart, your mind. And as it deforms your heart and deforms your mind, it deforms your life. And so sometimes we have to, number one, watch what other people say to us and uncritically accepting critiques or criticism from other people can also deform your heart. Sometimes we need to look at ourselves with sober judgment. We need to look at ourselves as we are and as they are and take what is right from what they're saying and what's right, what we're saying to ourselves and use that and then push the rest of it away because it can actually have a terrible effect on you. In fact, um, there's a great example of this in the Bible. Uh, my, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is David. David is just a, he's a complicated guy. He, he is a man after God's own heart. That's what God said about him, but he's complicated. One day he decides not to do what he's responsible to do, which is to be the moral and spiritual leader of Israel, right? He's a king. So one day he sends his army out to go fight a battle but David stays at home. That's not what leaders do. Leaders are in the front. They lead from the front. They don't lead from the behind. To have moral authority, you don't say, do as I tell you to do. You say, I will do, and then you do. That's what we do as leaders, right? That's what leadership is. But David stays home. He's on the top of his palace. He looks down. He sees this woman. She's beautiful. I'm not making that up. The Bible says it. Bathsheba is beautiful. And he sees her, and she is bathing. And instead of, that's not his fault. He saw it. He could have turned away and done something different, disciplined his mind and said, this is not what I'm gonna do. But instead, he just lets the thoughts go running into his heart, into his mind, and he doesn't take them captive. This leads to an obsession about her, so much so that her husband, whose name is Uriah, um, and Uriah the Hittite is in the army of David. And so David calls one of his generals and says, hey, general, come here. And he's already slept with Bathsheba. She's pregnant, and he's now like, how do I figure this out? So he says, hey, take take Uriah the Hittite, put him at the front of the line, and when the battle is the fiercest and the fighting is the harshest, remove yourself and the rest of the guys from him. And that's exactly what they did, and Uriah died. And David's like, problem solved. Not too long after that, a prophet named Nathan, and he speaks for God at this point in time in Israel. Nathan comes to him and says, There is an injustice been done in your kingdom, David. And David, because of his king, one of the things that he did was he also judged. And so Nathan comes before him and says, hey, David, listen, somebody's done something terrible. This really powerful man took from this farmer, this fairly weak guy who has like one beautiful spotless lamb. He took this from the farmer and he made it his own and he ate it and just took it. And David, just like you and I, which when you see the strong oppressing the weak, he goes, that's outrageous. He goes, surely this man should die. And Nathan turns back around and he goes, David, you're this guy. You stole his one, you stole Bathsheba, didn't have anything, you took his wife. In that moment, David has this, 
And this is what's beautiful about David, not that he was just a sinner, but that he also loved the Lord. He turns right now immediately in that moment, instead of justifying himself or continuing down the road of a mind that's twisted up, he says, you're right. I've done this wickedness before the Lord. I have sinned before the Lord. And he doesn't talk about sinning before Uriah. He doesn't talk about sinning against Bathsheba because he did both. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then he asks for help. But we read these verses sometimes detached from the story that I just told you. We think of them as beautiful, wonderful things. These are words of lament that come from David. Psalm 51:10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We, we look at that and we go, yes, that's great. See, what he's really saying is create in me a pure mind, God, because my mind got polluted. I didn't discipline my mind. I allowed my mind just to go anywhere. I didn't take captive these thoughts. And now what's happened is this thing has given birth to something terrible in my life. Now, not only is David going to lose this child that Bathsheba's carrying, but he's also a murderer. And he also separated himself from God. So his response is, God, I need help. I need you to take my mind and renew it. I need a steadfast spirit within me. A steadfast spirit is consistent, faithful, and true. I need you to make me who you said that I was. Because you lifted me up and made me king of Israel. You gave me a steadfast spirit. This is who I am. But I acted poorly because I did not discipline my mind. Out of my life came terrible things. And Jesus picks up this same narrative in the New Testament. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart and an evil man brings evil things stored up out of the stuff stored up in his heart. Listen, We've got two men, a good man and an evil man, and both of them do the same thing, and so do we. We store things in our heart. All of us are doing that right now. We're presently doing that right now. We store things in our heart. It's one of the reasons why the Bible teaches us, don't let the the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because you're not supposed to carry this over from one conversation, from one fight to the next fight. Have you ever wondered, like, and I think this happens mostly with people who are closest to you, uh, this maybe like the marriage relationship is probably the closest relationship. But have you ever noticed that when you're talking to your spouse and all of a sudden it goes from zero to a hundred, you might say something and then they just ignite really fast. Or, you know, she says something, he ignites, he says something, she ignites, it gets really big. There's an argument. And you're going, I just said this little thing. That's because it's not about the little thing that you said. It's about what the good or the wicked that was stored in the heart prior to this. It's about what we're carrying with us all the time, that all it needs is just a little bit of a trigger for something just to ignite. It's not about the conversation or the fight you're having. Most of us can look at the fights that we have and go, that was dumb afterwards. But the emotions are real because a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the stored, what's stored up in his heart. So we're constantly storing things. And we see this kind of thing happen all the time. The other day, I was out, uh, I get my um, car washed, my truck washed at Octopus uh, Car Wash down in 1792, right? And there's a guy who works there. And I feel like I just have great relationships with all the people there. I love to talk with them. And, you know, they're just great folks. There's one guy that's not. There's just, just not. I'm not going to tell you which one he is. But there's just one guy. And I just see him yell at other staff members. I see him just really angry all the time. And I'm just like, what is this guy's problem? So the other night, we were out celebrating my son's birthday. And I, was, I saw his family and they were like, he didn't know me, but, but I see him. And, and his family's over here and everybody's just kind of like annoyed with them because they're super loud and they're arguing with each other and just all kinds of stuff. And I just started thinking about it and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what that is. That is generations 
That is generations of people not taking captive their thoughts and not disciplining their hearts. And it's fathers making their sons like them and their daughters like them. And then they're growing up and becoming parents and making their children like them. That's generational brokenness because of the thought process that was introduced a long, long time ago down the road. This is why, by the way, this is why, by the way, when, um, when you see a child and that child has been talked to really well, you can do it, you're able, hard work will make things work. This child grows up to be healthy and good. Many of you know that I grew up in a family that was very abusive. My father was a destructive force in my life. And one of the things that he said is, uh, he would say to me as a child, he said, you're a lazy, terrible person who's never gonna grow up and do anything. And when you grow up like that, there's stuff that's stored in your heart. So not only do you store stuff in your heart, but other people store stuff in your heart too. And so as that happened to me for a long time, I just kind of saw that in myself. And I think there are places where when I was a child, I thought like a child, a reason like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things behind me, I had to cut those cords. And a lot of you in the room right now, you need to cut those cords because a long time ago, somebody put something evil inside of you. And you walk around and it's not outside of you anymore, it's inside of you. And so you're walking around and you're screaming at yourself, you're a failure all the time. Some of you literally go to sleep and the last thought you said to yourself was, I did it again, or I didn't make it again. You were created in the image of God. You're a bearer of his dignity and his glory. You were made to be more than what somebody who stored up a bunch of evil in their heart poured into you. You were meant to be something different. And so how do we know? How can you tell a good man or an evil or an evil man? How can you tell the difference between them? Well, right here it tells us. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So, so here's, can I tell you a way in which we like really do this in an immature, superficial way in the church? Way we often define this last part is for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We, we basically reduce it down to something as simple because it's controllable as foul language or cussing. I don't even know what cussing is. Like that's not in the Bible. You go, well, yes, it is. No, the Bible's, no, the overall principle of cussing in the Bible is this. Let only that which is good for the building up of the church or others come out of your mouth. There are no words that are outlawed in the Bible. No, no, seriously, like there are no words. So, so only that which comes out of your mouth, which is good for the building up of, of a person, right? So when the coach is running down the, 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 the I, I always hate sports, uh, I'm not a sporty guy. So I just, when, you're, when a coach is running down the field with a football player and he's screaming at him and he's yelling at him, he's like, move your ass. <laughs> is that wrong? <laughs> that was the best thing that's ever happened in the church. How old was that child? Like four? That was amazing. No, it's not wrong. You're 100% right. Don't go home and say that. But, uh, but all, that, all that to say, all that to say, like when he's doing that, the player hears it and he's like, yes, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna be more. Sometimes I've in having conversations with other men, I'm like, get it together. God made you to be more than just a guy who chases women or does something like this. And that hard tone creates soft hearts in men sometimes. So we're not talking about just foul language. Because you can also flip that around. I did this like nine months ago. How many of you grew up Southern? Raise your hands. You did not grow up Southern. You grew up here. So, 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 all right. So if you grew up Southern, 
you know this better than anybody else, okay? You don't have to say a swear word to tear someone apart. All you have to say is, bless your heart, <laughs> right? That's it. You, you just tore that person apart, right? Right there. But, but, but most Christians, because bad words are bad and good words are good, would say that you didn't do anything wrong there. But it, what you did was you actually tore them down. So when Luke is writing these things, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, the question is not whether or not someone says a bad word. The question is, when you have the end of the conversation with someone, did you walk out feeling built up or torn apart? Because when you are torn apart, it is what the, the evil stored up in a person's heart. It's just flowing out into your life. So at times you have to say hard things and hard things can excite a person. Hard things can motivate a person. Hard things can actually help you take your next step toward Christ. But destructive things are not to come out of the mouth of a Christian. Even if you're not using foul language, the foulest people that I've ever met are really, really good legalists who speak poorly about everyone. And so Romans 12, 3 for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. What does sober judgment mean? It means accuracy. It means clarity, right? When we look at sober judgment, it means that we have clear-headed judgment. So a few questions for you to think about right now. Number one, what am I good at? What am I good at? This is a hard one for some of you. Because for some of you, when someone comes up to you and says, hey, you're beautiful, you push back on it because you're like, no, not me. Not, that's, that's not me. Someone comes up and says, hey, you're really talented. And you're like, that's just, uh, that's not me. The problem with that is somebody just poured some stuff into you a long time ago and you now believe that about yourself. The problem with that is that when God comes and says, hey, I have this great thing for you to do in your life, you go, I'm not qualified. If God asks you, you're qualified. If God puts it in front of you, he will enable you to do it. So we got to get rid of some of this and discipline our minds so that we're taking captive the thoughts that are not obedient to Christ. And when they're not, cast them away. And only let that which is good come in. So he starts off this whole thing by saying, hey, don't have an inflated sense of yourself. And I think when most of us think of pride, that's what we think of. We think of somebody who's got their chest puffed out. They're awesome all the time. I'm great. Everyone needs to be like me, that kind of thing. So let's take a look at pride up on the screen. Pride has two sides to it, self-condemnation and self-exaltation, right? When most of us think about pride, we think about self-exaltation. Self-exaltation is like, I'm awesome. Look at me, I'm great, be like me. And that's what most of us think pride is. But pride is actually tricky and very sneaky. In fact, it was pride that was the first sin of, of Lucifer. And pride was the first sin of Adam and Eve in the rebellion in the garden. They basically believe they can find their own happiness outside of God. So let's take a look at this. Two definitions. Self-condemnation is a form of pride because we believe that we are owed more than what we've received. We feel bad because we should be more, have more, and do more. And I think most people's solution when you see somebody walking in self-condemnation, because right now some of you push back in your mind, you go, that's not pride. That's weakness and insecurity. Hold on. Our solution to weakness and insecurity is often to say, no, 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 you're awesome. Be better. You're great. Just think better of yourself. Put yourself. But when we do that, we put the person on a pedestal. And so when they look at themselves and examine their life, they just have further to fall. 
And so our encouragement can sometimes be destructive in the life of a person like this. So, and here's the reason why. I'm gonna illustrate this in a second, but here's, here's the reason why. We have the person that we know with all of the good and the bad. This is the real person. And then we have this imaginary person out here. And the further apart your imaginary self is from your real self, the more you hate yourself. The more you hate yourself. Case in point, when I first got married to my wife, Kelly, we lived in College Park and uh, we lived uh, across the street from the Dubs Dread Country Club on the golf course. And uh, I would go out in the mornings. We lived on the third story. And I would uh, go out in the mornings. I'd drink my coffee and read my Bible um, most of the time. Because being on the golf course, you get to see all kinds of studies in human behavior. And uh, I don't quite understand why golfing is relaxing for anybody because it certainly wasn't for many of these guys, right? And so I would watch them hit these incredible shots down the fairway, right? And then they would get to the green, which, you know, everybody that golfs, I don't golf, but everybody that golfs knows that, that the green is everything right? You can get there, but getting in the hole from there is very difficult. And so I'd see these guys, they'd be up there, you know, with their, you know, thousand dollar clubs. And uh, they're about three feet away from the hole. They boom, and it would go over there and hit it far away. You know, it'd be terrible, right? And I would see guys, you know, the F word would fly out all the time. I would see people pick up their golf clubs and throw them in the sand trap. It was, they were so frustrated. What's going on? There's my real self and there's my imaginary Tiger Woods self, right? (laughs) And, and I, I watch Tiger do it on TV, so it's not that hard. I can do the same thing, right? It's just, you know, it's all about keeping the arm straight. No, it's not. There's a real self and there's an imaginary self. And the further apart these things are, the more that we will hate ourselves in the process. They just were frustrated with themselves. But what's happening there? It's pride. It's a source of pride. The way to help a person like that is like not to go, hey, you'll get it in the next hole, because maybe he won't. And then it'll just feel terrible. Do it again, it'll feel worse. It'll be like at the end, I'm quitting golf, right? Why? Because there's a real sense of who we are. He says, think of yourself soberly. What am I good at? Where do I fall short in life? Where can I make improvements? Where am I succeeding? That question is hard for people to answer sometimes. And, And I just want you to understand, like somebody who's really humble is able to say, I'm really good at this and I'm not so great at this. Because a humble person is not a self-conscious person. You're not walking around insecure and worried that you have weaknesses that you have to hide from other people or that you have strengths that you can say, this is how God made me. But we're either gonna fall into the category of self-condemnation, this is what it means by thinking too highly of yourself, or self-exaltation, which basically just says, hey, everyone's beneath my status. That's a clear and easy one for us. But maybe the part that, is screaming inside of us all the time. Do better, try harder, be more. We need to actually look at ourselves through the lens of what the Bible says we are and who God says we are. Because all of us, to one degree or another, have had an evil man or woman pour something into us and that's stored in parts of our heart. You know, in communion, when I talk about the day in which we'll be relieved of our suffering, that God will heal us, this is the stuff I'm talking about. Some of us will carry this for the rest of our life. But we process is disciplining our heart. So we're not undone by this as time goes on. So Paul gives a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live in the church, and it's exclusive of this kind of pride. In fact, I'm gonna say a precursor to you being connected to anybody is being humble and not prideful because pridefulness ultimately will separate you from everyone around you, right? It'll, it'll separate you from everyone around you because if I believe everyone is beneath me, then you know, that, dis- that detaches me from everyone else. But if I'm filled with self-condemnation, I don't think I'm worthy to be around anyone. And therefore, I'm out. 
Pride has this sneaky, tricky way of making us feel alone and putting us on an island by ourselves. So he says, pride is not the way that we as a church work together. We are humble with one another. I'm gonna show you how he does that. Philippians chapter two, one through seven, it says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love. So if you're a Christian, that's what this is. You have any comfort uh, from, from Christ, any, comments, any, any connection to the Holy Spirit, any tenderness or compassion, keep going, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Can I just say this passage right here is one of the most important passages for our age and our day right now? Because we live in a world, and I've been talking to you guys about this for a long time now, that we as Christians are not to walk around with angry hearts all the time. But the world we live in separates us into categories and pushes us away from and against each other all the time. And Paul says, as a teacher, you're going to make my joy complete by having the same kind of mind. And that means that we're not going to agree on everything, but that we agree that Jesus is the most important thing and he's our primary identity. And when Jesus is the most important thing and the primary identity, everything else is details. We can work all that out. But we're one in spirit and one of mind. How do we do that? Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Do nothing out of personal gain for yourself. That's the hard part, nothing. You're like, yeah, sometimes. No, no, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. So what does that mean? That means I'm here and you're here, always. My wife is here, my kids are here, my friends are here, my church is here, and I'm here. And it has to be like that in every relationship that you're in. But man, this is so valuable because Paul is giving us this incredible life hack in how to deal with people, okay? So I go to this gym. I go to two gyms, actually. And uh, I go to the RDV, which is right around the corner from here. And that's like a country club. <laughs> and uh, have you been there? It's amazing. Um, and then I go to the gym where my personal trainer trains me. And it's a bro gym, okay? So, and there's bro culture. I, had no, I, had no, I didn't know any of this, right? And, uh, and so I walked in much different than I was. I was way overweight, struggling, trying to figure out, just starting out. And none of the guys in the gym would talk to me whatsoever. I'd be like, hey, Pastor Mike here. And, uh, and they're just like, you just walk the other. I mean, it was really, I was like, it's like fifth grade again, sixth grade. It was terrible. So I was there, I was there. Well, as time went on, things began to change. And I walked in, and this was maybe like six months ago, eight months ago. Um, I walked in. And one of the biggest guys there, he walks up, he goes, my man. And, and I was like, my man, you know? I was like, yeah. I realized I went from outside to inside culture. Let me tell you why it was though. It's because I was constantly encouraging them. I was doing it Friday. There's two guys, right? And they're just big, they're awesome. Like they're just power lifter kind of guys. They're great. And I was talking to them. And I'm like, man, you guys, you guys are so strong. I'm like, but I'm just as strong as those guys. But I'm like, you guys, see, that was pride, right there. That was, that was, that was pride. So, so, so I'm talking, I'm like, you guys are so strong. That's great. You guys are doing, you guys are killing this. And one guy was dancing to the music. And I was like, man, I wish I had rhythm like that. He's like, no, it's easy. All you got to do is step, step. And I'm like, no, I, I can't do that. Like, it's not me. And I go, plus you look so much cooler doing it than I would ever do. I would ever look. And he goes, he goes, well, I mean, he, but you're bald. And I was like, Cool compliment, man. You know, I was like, that's weird. He goes, no, no, no. He's like, you're bald. You got that beard. You look tough and strong. And I was like, thanks, man. But here's, here's, here's what happened. Here's what happened. I, I would put myself here over and over again. And eventually, these guys are like, no, no, get up here with us. Because that's what humility does. 
If you wanna be exalted, humble yourself. That's what the Bible teaches us. Humble yourself before the Lord and in due time, he will exalt you. So if that works with the Lord, it also you know, works with everyone else in your life. If you're humble, Jesus even has this conversation with his disciples. He's like, listen, when you go to a dinner party, don't go to the head of the table and put the t- take the position of honor. It's not what you do. He says, because someone more important might come in and then they might ask you to move seats, which would be terrible, right? Jesus is like, it's common sense, right? Two guys are fighting. Which one of us is gonna sit at the right hand? Jesus is like, neither of you, you know? Why? Because there's a bent inside of us to exalt ourselves. There's a bit inside of us to think too highly of ourselves. And he's constantly saying, humble yourself, because you know what? If you take the seat of least honor, the one who comes will say, please move forward and you'll be lifted up. It's this strange hack that works with the toughest of people, with the people who have maybe even pushed you out, humble yourself before them. Every single thing in our culture, in our world, teaches us to do the exact opposite of that. Lift yourself up. I'm awesome. I'm great. Wonderful but nobody wants to be around that person, really. We don't love that you're here and we're here. So the scriptures teach us, let's not do things out of selfish ambition, but in humility, value others above you. And as we do that, it opens people's hearts. Verse four says it like this, not looking to your own interests, but to each of the interests of the others in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what kind of mindset did Jesus have? It was this, who being in the very nature of God, that means equal to God, all God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. We are, as Christians, servant leaders. It's what we are. The servant becomes before the leader. We're servant leaders. We do everything that we can with excellence in our life. We work hard. We grind hard. It's what we do. But at the end of the day, everyone else is here and we're here. Because when we humble ourselves before the Lord in this way, he exalts. And when he exalts, you're at a place where you're not going to look down on people because you've always seen people as here and you here. There is a humility that is derived from considering other people before yourself. Listen, this is strategic, and I'm going to talk about it in just a second. Romans 3, chapter 3, or 12, verse 3 through 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has given to each of you. He uses this, this passage then in Romans 4, 12, 4, and 5. And he says it like this. It's an illustration to illustrate the point that we're talking about. For just as each of us, for just as each of us has one physical body, this physical body, right? With many members, I have hands, I have feet, ears, eyes, and a nose. And each one of these things does a different function for my body in order for the body to function right, right? And these members, parts, do not all have the same function. Go on. So in Christ, though many individuals form one body, one church, and each individual member belongs to all the others. Listen, the only way you can belong to others is rid yourself of pride and self-exalting or self-condemning pride because that always separates you from everyone else. If you want to be strategic in the relationships of your life and have an influence in someone else's life, consider their needs before your needs. And guys, this is, I think, very encouraging to me. 
because I see grace doing this over and over again. I hear people that come to the church. We have so many new people coming to church. I hear people all the time say, it's so friendly, it's so kind, it's so nice, it's so generous. And the reason for that is because we're considering others before ourselves. We have radical servanthood. We lay ourselves down for others. And you know what that does? It opens hearts and minds. And so if you have a family member, a friend, a coworker who's far from God, this is what we do. We humble ourselves in front of them. And there's something that's just in human nature. Maybe it's just the the image of God inside every person, but there's something in every single person. When someone comes to you humble, you automatically become humble as well. Or you lift them up to where, where, where you are. It opens doors for us. And guys, in the city of Orlando right now, we've been talking about this for a while, but the gospel needs to go forth. It just needs to be good news in the hearts and minds of people again. And the way that we do that is through humility. The way that we do that is through serving. The way that we do that is laying our lives down for other people. I'm telling you guys, if we unleash the entire church on the city of Orlando, Orlando, and just said, hey guys, what we're gonna do is we're gonna serve, we're gonna love people really well. We're not gonna get broiled in all kinds of controversy. We're not gonna be political. We're not gonna be angry. We're not gonna be frustrated. We're gonna show the world a more beautiful story they can be part of because God loves them. If we do that, we'll see lives transformed. And so let's stay on course. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Continue to walk in a humble manner. And when you see pride boil up, when you see lust boil up, when you see fear boil up, self-condemnation, take control of it. Discipline your heart and your mind so that you can pour good inside. And that will be what's stored inside of you. And that will be what flows out of you for the good of your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and church. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we are so thankful that you love us so much that you actually give us things like Paul to discipline us at times, to say, man, we just, we need to be on track to not think about ourselves quite so much. And Lord, thank you that ironically, the less that we think about ourselves in these ways, the more happy and content we become. So Father, we want you to do great things in our families. We want you to do great things in the generations of children that we're raising right now. We want you to do great things in the future of our church. And so we humble ourselves before you because we know, God, that in due time, in the right moment, in the right time, you exalt. And when you do that, God, we promise that we'll give you all the glory for it. It's in your name we pray, amen.